Good evening, everyone. We're going to get started. Welcome back. It's so good to see so many familiar faces. Um, we missed you so much over all these months and years. We figured out that the last Science Cafe was in February of 2020. That's how long it's been. Sorry? Yeah, there was something. Ask, ask one of your neighbors, they'll, they'll fill you in. So um, thank you so much for coming out tonight. We didn't know what to expect. We didn't know how many people would come, and this is just wonderful. My name's Amy Harris. I'm director of the Museum of Natural History at the University of Michigan. And we've been doing these science cafes for 15 years, right, Kira? And um, a lot of you have been coming for 15 years, so that's great. Um, I want to start by thanking Connor O'Neill's for hosting this event. They've been an amazing partner for all these years. And I want to tell you about some upcoming events at the museum, um, or here. The, the next one is actually the next Science Cafe. It's on Wednesday, November 16th, and it's in this room. Same time, same place. And the, the title is Mapping Biodiversity Hotspots in Ancient Oceans. So you might know that that's something that our director of the Museum of Paleontology, Matt Friedman, works on. And he's one of the speakers. It's on Wednesday, November 16th. Here. You're here. Just stay. You can just stay. Okay. F following that, on November 6, uh, 20th, which is a Sunday, we have a scientist spotlight featuring a variety of scientists from the University of Michigan who have participated in our Science Communication Fellows Program. And they will be practicing on you with their newfound science communication skills. And they have a lot of hands-on activities. It's a lot of fun. And as part of that event, biology students in, from the university um, in the biology department will be partnering with students from the School of Music, Theater, and Dance and putting on a performance related to biology. So come check that out. And then finally, on Thursday, December 1st, at 7 p.m., um, Professor Dan Fisher will be giving a talk, our annual Ferrand Lecture, our Ferrand Memorial Lecture, and the title is On the Trail of an Ice Age Mastodon. And this is about the research, recent research that was published just in the last few months that traces the life of a specific individual mastodon whose cast skeleton is in our lobby, in our atrium, the Bushing Mastodon. So you can come to the, our building and see Dan speak live, or you can watch on live stream. And you can get more information by being on our mailing list or looking at our website. If you want to get on our email list, put your email on the blue form on the table. And with no further ado, I'm going to turn things over to Kira Berman, our Assistant Director for Education. Thank you so much, Amy. So uh, tonight we'll be talking, as you know, about the James Webb Space Telescope and the pictures uh, that you might have been seeing. Um, and I am very pleased 
to have Ted Berg in here. He's the um, professor and chair of the U of M Department of Astronomy. Um, and he emailed me a different bio to read, so I'm going to be reading from my phone with my glasses on. Uh, that's okay. I got you. Um, uh, so he is professor and chair in the Department of Astronomy within the College of Literature, Science, and Arts at U of M. Bergen graduated with a BS in astronomy and astrophysics from Villanova University and received his PhD in astrophysics from the University of Massachusetts. He then moved to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and in 2003, he joined the faculty at U of M. In 2008, he was the recipient of the Henry Russell Award, the highest honor bestowed by the U of M uh, for junior faculty. Yeah, first junior faculty. In 2019, he was awarded the Heinemann Prize for Astrophysics by the American Astronomical Society and the American Institute of Physics. And this is one of the highest prizes offered by the field for his pioneering work in astrochemistry and innovative contributions to our understanding of the physics and chemistry of star and planet formation, and for his tireless efforts to improve diversity and inclusion in astronomy. Um, Ted is also a friend of our Science Cafe program and has spoken several times. Um, his research focus is on using chemistry to explore the origins of stars and planets. He observes and models the chemical conditions that exist as planets are born, seeking to determine the link between this composition and the final composition of planets in our solar system and other solar systems. This work ultimately aims at understanding whether the supply of life's needed chemicals is preordained to form an Earth-like world or whether that's a rare outcome. So um, I'm so pleased that you'll be here uh, to speak with us. For those um, who are new to the Science Cafe, I'm just going to take a minute to explain the format. Um, and um, we, uh, Ted Bergen will give a presentation for the first 25 or so minutes. And then um, we'll take a break. That'll be time got to take my glasses off, to refill your glasses uh, and talk to each other. There are some conversation questions on the table. And then we'll come back together for the last half hour from about 7 to 7.30 to do a group discussion. Um, we thank Connor O'Neill's and you for making this possible. And without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Ted. Please welcome Ted Bergen. All right, well, thank you, Kira, and, and thank you, Amy. I'm, I'm super excited to, to share with you some pictures from, from your telescope. You paid for it. Uh, it's taxpayer dollars, so thank you for that. Is it possible to, to lower the lights? Because the, the images are awesome. Yeah, you could try that. But I'm, I'm going to blurb off first before we get to the cool stuff. Um, I, I want to talk about why and what is the James Webb Telescope? Why did we build it? We spent 10 bajillion dollars on this thing. It's, it's an expensive piece. It's the most expensive space telescope. It's amazing and it's an amazing piece of engineering. And I think it, it's, it's important that we, as you know, our rah-rah Americans, 
have to celebrate this. This is a tremendous technological achievement, and it was done in joint with the European uh, Space Agency as well, which we have to note, uh, recognize. All right, and then I'm gonna just show you some pictures, uh, and then just talk about what's in the pictures and, and what are they telling us. The stuff that I do actually, for the most part, isn't using the pictures. The pictures are just the backdrop for the detailed sciences that I'm trying to, to dig in. But I, just like you, uh, am in awe of, of some of these images that we've seen. And, and, and I wanted to, to myself, it was really great to sit down and dig in and try to understand what we can tell from a picture. So, James Webb launched on Christmas Day uh, last year. I, I was sitting in, you know, in my pajamas in a chair with my family, not caring what I was doing, but I was glued to the screen of my computer uh, watching you know, the, the launch of this telescope. And the launch was amazing, but the most exciting thing for me was this moment here where James Webb separated from uh, the launch fairing and we got to see the solar panels deploy. And why the heck did I care about that? Because that's step one, this thing will have power. If it doesn't have power, we're toast, right? It's all over. And so when I saw that, tears, just tears, oh my God. <laughs> that was the last time we saw this instrument. And I thought, you know, it's so far away from the earth that it boggles the mind. I never thought we would see it again. But then NASA installed a camera on the damn thing and took a selfie, <laughs> right? So what is that, right? You know, but all right, that's the modern world. So this is James Webb Space Telescope, literally in the middle of nowhere. You think you know the middle of nowhere, you don't. This place is where nothing else is. All right, so the goals of James Webb, what it was trying to do was to look at the end of the dark ages what's called first light and reionization. So the universe was born in a huge, tremendous explosion. And we know this because we see all galaxies that we look at are heading away from us. And the ones that are more distant appear to be moving faster away from us. And it's not because we smell or anything, but rather it's the structure of the universe. If you imagine that, that we have a sponge and then you put water in the sponge and the sponge expands, right? Every point in that sponge is moving away from another point. And it's the same amount of time. You take the, the sponge and it expands to its maximum extent, okay? So velocity is distance over time. So if you're in the center of that sponge, the stuff on the edge of the sponge is further away, has a greater distance. It's the same amount of time as something that's halfway away from you. So the velocity appears to be of the more distant part of the sponge appears to be higher. So that's what the universe is like. It's just a, a sponge just growing out like this. And so that's one of the things we want to look at is everything started out as a soup of primordial materials. And then eventually you had the first atoms and there were no stars. So we call these the dark ages because there was no starlight. 
and eventually clumps of gas got together and through gravity collapsed and formed the first stars. So this is the first light in the universe. This is what we call the epoch of reionization. What do I mean by that? That is, these stars were supermassive, and they put out copious amounts of radiation that took those atoms, which were mostly neutral, and ionized them. So that is, they stripped an electron off and left it with an excess positive charge. And so James Webb's, one of his goals is to study basically the and search for first light in the universe, which is like insane, right? And then you might imagine, okay, the next step would be you get first light in the universe, and then stars are not alone generally. They're in assemblages, which we call galaxies, gigantic cities of stars. And with James Webb, we will and are able to study the birth of star of, of galaxies. And I'll show you one of those uh, images today. Uh, what I do is the birth of stars and planets. And so a big thing for James Webb is planet formation. Uh, that is, we will be able to observe regions where we, planets are being born right now as we look at them, so baby planets. Uh, and then ultimately, one of the big stretch goals, this is gonna be a little bit harder, uh, is in astronomy, one of the explosions in terms of science has been that we've detected planets around other stars. Uh, you know, when I started as a student, we had detected zero planets around other stars. And here I am 25 years later, I, maybe I can't count right, but we have 5,000 planets and counting that we've detected around other stars. And some of these planets, most of them are big, bigger than Jupiter, okay? But some of them are small enough in Earth size that they might, might host life. And that's one of the things that James Webb will try to do, is to see if we can detect life around other stars. And I'll show you how we're going to try to do that. Uh, whether we will succeed is, is another question, because we might need to wait for the next big space telescope that NASA is going to build, which I can talk about if we have time. Okay, so astronomers, we can't touch things, we can't feel things. What we have to do is we use light as our messenger. Okay, so light bears all the information that we can get from these objects. And so when we do that, we have to use all aspects of light. That is, the light that we can see with our eyes is just a tiny little part of the spectrum, the full spectrum of light. And the full spectrum contains tons of information. So you go from the highest energy particles, the, the solar, the photons, photons of light. These are so-called gamma rays. All right, this is the shortest wavelength. So wavelength is, you think of a wave, it's the, the distance between peaks in a wave. So the, the waves are more tightly packed together, okay? Uh, and as I go to, lower energy, but still pretty hot. So x-rays, we're all familiar with x-rays, right? Uh, you go to the doctor, and, or the dentist is the more common one, right? They'll take x-rays of your teeth. You don't see that light pass through your face, right? Uh, you know it's happening, because they stick that stuff right next to you to make sure that the x-rays only go exactly where they want them to go. Uh, but the x-rays are present. So there's light that's available that we can't see with our eyes. And x-rays is a great example. And then there's ultraviolet light, uh, which you know, is, is another higher energy form of light. 
And then there's the visible light that we're familiar with. This is the domain of the Hubble Space Telescope. Hubble is taking pictures at wavelengths that our eyes could see. And, you know, it's an interesting thing about that. You know, why is it that our eyes are attuned to visible light? And the answer is evolution, that our sun emits most of its energy in the visible part of the spectrum of light, and that our eyes adapted to where most of the energy was. And that sort of makes sense, right, that things would happen that way. There would be an evolutionary advantage for beings that could see a little bit better than others. Okay, so here we go, we have the visible lights, and then you go to even longer wavelengths, that's the infrared, that's where James Webb resides. So the, another way to think about this stuff is the gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet, this is really hot stuff and you're getting colder and colder as you go this way. So infrared, and then we get microwaves, so microwave ovens, all right, what's that? that's light waves. And what is it doing? The microwave is interacting with water molecules that are present in the food that you put in there, and that water molecules vibrate when they interact with that light. And that vibration causes heat, and the thing heats up. All right, and you know that if you leave something in the microwave too long, it doesn't taste so good, that's because you've lost all your water eventually, okay? So there's the microwave, and you go to even longer wavelengths, that's the domain of radio telescopes. And I actually am a radio astronomer. The energy of light at, this, at these wavelengths is equivalent to a fly landing on a table. And, and we can detect that, which is just amazing. So this is the spectrum of light. So the Hubble is in the visible. James Webb is in what we call the mid-infrared or near-infrared. So just slightly longer wavelengths than the visible part of the spectrum. Now, why do we have to go to space to do this? And that's, it's, the answer is because we have an atmosphere. Okay, so this is a plot, again, of wavelength, all right, versus what's, what we call opacity. So basically, if it's 100%, the photons from interstellar objects get blocked by our atmosphere. And the only way we can see them is to basically build satellites to go out somewhere into space, orbit the Earth, or in this case, go to a, a different spot uh, where you can essentially be above the atmosphere, okay? And so that's where the ultraviolet gamma rays, there's the visible part of the spectrum. We can see visible light all the way down to the surface of the planet. We kind of know that. We can see the sun, right? Except for on a cloudy day. We're in Michigan, so we have to accept that, right? Uh, you go to infrared, and this is the domain where uh, James Webb is, right here. And you can see there's pockets where we can do stuff, but this is the reason why you have to go above and out of the atmosphere, is these regions here. So we just basically can't see that. Sometimes we can build telescopes on big mountaintops, and that helps in this, and that's why most of our facilities are on tops of mountains, uh, is to try to beat against this. Uh, and as you go to longer and longer wavelengths, radio waves work perfectly. Hey, I'm supposed to give Science Cafe. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It should have told me 10 minutes ago. All right. So this is one of the reasons why we built James Webb. Okay, we had to, 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 to go above the atmosphere to observe at these particular wavelengths. 
Another reason is the atmosphere actually messes with your photons of light, okay? That is, as the stars twinkle, 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 little star, all right, that is not the star itself. The star is just emitting light at a constant rate. It's the atmosphere, okay? The atmosphere is not steady, it's not stable. There's lots of little pockets and little eddies and things like that, and that causes the, causes the light to get sort of changed on its way down uh, to wherever you are observing. And so here, for example, is a picture of uh, a galaxy right here from a telescope that is eight meters in size. This is the Subaru telescope. It's on the top of Mauna Kea at 13,000 feet, way up there. I, I observe there is very little oxygen. It's a, it's a blast. Um, it's very beautiful if you get a chance to go. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. Uh, and this is the Hubble Space Telescope. The Hubble Space Telescope is a 2.4 meter telescope. So it's basically one fourth the size of Subaru. And you can think of telescopes as the bigger you go, the bigger you, you build your telescope, the more finer details you can observe. That makes sense, okay? The, right? And the other thing is it's a bigger light bucket. You can collect more light, right? So you can see more fainter things. But the Hubble Space Telescope is one-fourth the size, but look at that picture, right? This is just a blob out there. It's a blob galaxy. And all of a sudden, I can see it's got some structure in it. That's the atmosphere. That's why the Hubble Space Telescope is so amazing and why it's still doing amazing science 25 years after it was launched. It's because it's still valuable to us that even if we can build, eight meter telescope is a big telescope. Uh, but Hubble is insanely valuable from that perspective. So James Webb is the same sort of thing, okay? So another thing that can affect the quality of your picture is that the wavelength that you observe at. As you go to longer wavelengths, you have to build bigger telescopes to get crisper images, all right? So that's another factor. The most, the other telescope that observed at the same wavelengths that uh, James Webb is observing was the Spitzer Space Telescope. Uh, that was in operation still in 2003 when I first came here to the University of Michigan. Spitzer was a 0.85 meter telescope. So, you know, right? Uh, James Webb is 6.5 meters, so it's much, much bigger than that, and it's going to take much more crisper images than Spitzer ever could, and you'll be able to detect fainter things. Okay? So this is an example of that. This is just one random field uh, comparing a picture that Spitzer took to what James Webb has taken. So this is... Uh, at a particular wavelength, basically the same field. And you can see the stars here are blobby. All of a sudden you see what we call diffraction spikes. That's when you're telling you're getting a, a pure image of the star. That's, that's the telescope optics is what is doing that, those spikes. And then there's structure and material around there, which I'll have to talk about in a minute. So this is one of the reasons why we do what we do, okay? that you want to build a telescope, if you want to break the barriers of understanding, we have to build bigger telescopes and access regions that are regions of the light spectrum of light that are difficult to access from the ground. So that's why you build a telescope like the James Webb Space Telescope.
So, one of the goals of James Webb, as I said, was to detect first light. The first light in the universe, the end of the cosmic, the, the ultimate dark age, where there is no light. All right? So I told you that objects that are further away from us are moving away from us at a faster pace. All right? That's what's called the cosmological redshift. And the reason why we call it a redshift is because the velocity of objects, whether they're moving towards us or away from us, changes the wavelength of light as it moves along. And so if you take an, uh, something here that as you go to an object today, okay, and you go to something that's way back in the Big Bang, the light that's emitted in the visible part of the spectrum will be changing its wavelength that we will be able to detect it at. And that's called the Doppler effect. So you, you, you might have heard, you know, a, a train horn as it's going by as you're sitting there, or a car horn, right? That's the Doppler effect. That's the sound waves changing wavelength as the thing goes by you. The same thing happens in space, okay? So what the first light from stars actually gets redshifted so it's right into the wavelength where James Webb can access it. And that's, that's what's demonstrated here. So this is looking back in time. So Hubble is able to get to almost to where the galaxies are being born. James Webb will get you to the epoch where galaxies are being born. That's what's being shown here. And we hope uh, to first light in the universe. That's something that's going to take a little bit more time uh, to determine whether that actually is seen or not. So, kind of setting the stage for you to understand. I'm going to show you lots of pictures, but I want you to be able to look at them and maybe understand some astrophysics when, when, when you look at the pictures. And so that's what I'm going to try and tee up here. This is an object that I actually uh, did some observations on when I was a, a very young astronomer. Uh, it it's looks like a void in space. It's an object that is projected against the, the bulge of the galaxy. The, the, the galaxy has tons of very old stars that extend out in like a halo uh, around the center of the galaxy. And when you look towards the center of the galaxy, this object is projected against that. And you see this dark thing here. That's if I look at it with visible light, okay? Now, if I look at this object in infrared light, going to longer wavelengths, like where James Webb is going to operate, this is not a James Webb image, okay? These were taken from telescopes from the European Southern Observatory. All of a sudden, I get to longer wavelengths, and I can see through this object and see the stars that are behind it. And what's going on here is this object is filled with stuff. And that stuff is capable of basically absorbing away all visible light. And as you go to longer wavelengths, that stuff must have changed, essentially, let me, another way of saying it is that when objects absorb light, they do it best when they are close to the size of the wavelength of light. All right? So when I go to longer wavelengths, these, these, the size of the particles must be about the same size as the wavelength of visible light. 
All right, so I'm looking, what you're actually looking at is what we call dust in astronomy. This is stuff that's uh, about a tenth of a micron on average in size, smaller than the width of a human hair. Uh, it's mostly solid particles that are made of silicates. And those silicates, we actually know what they are because you're sitting on them. Our planet is a gigantic silicate rock that was made from a bajillion of those tiny little dust particles that are absorbing the visible light in this object. All right, so that's a perspective. As I go to longer wavelengths, I might be able to see through stuff. Nope, I didn't want to do that. Another perspective is as you go to even longer wavelengths, you might be able to see the object itself. And that's what's happening here as I went to longer wavelengths, and this was work that I did. Uh, where you can actually observe and see the distribution of material in this object itself. What this object is, it's, it's, a, it's a cloud of gas and dust. So it's dust, the tiny particles, and gas, mostly molecular hydrogen, that has about the mass of four suns. And it's on its way to collapsing, and it's going to make a star like our sun. So that's star birth, essentially, okay? And the, 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 the relative sizes that we're talking about between the size of this object and the size of the sun it's going to be making is like taking the state of Pennsylvania where I was born and collapsing the entire thing down to the door of Independence Hall. Okay? So insane, insane scales. Astronomy's awesome, right? Okay. On my way to James Webb, we're not quite there yet. I wanted to set up the, this, this from another perspective. So this is again looking, this is, this, these are visible light image over here, and this is a Spitzer Space Telescope image. Okay, there's a bunch of things we can see, and this is called the Elephant Trunk Nebula. It's a really cool, really cool object, right? So you see this blob of stuff and this tail. There's all this dark stuff and then the, this white stuff. So you see this nebulosity here? That's starlight reflecting off those dust grains, showing that there's some stuff there, okay? So all this residual material, that's gonna be stuff that's gonna make a star someday, okay? Now I go to longer wavelengths and all of a sudden I don't see any of that residual stuff. I don't see this darkness. Instead, I just see the object itself. It's the same thing that I showed you there with that previous object. You're looking at the material that's going to make, that's making stars. And the neat thing here is that you look here, there's like some point sources. All of a sudden, you see these stars here? They're not present in this image. Those are baby stars. Those baby stars are born in a cocoon of material, the stuff of their birth that absorbs all their radiation and you don't see them at the visible wavelengths because there, there's so many dust grains in the near vicinity. Gravity has collapsed everything together. As you go to longer wavelengths, all of a sudden you can peer through this thing and you can see the baby stars. They're about a few hundred thousand years old, which, you know, Again, it's astronomy, right? A few hundred thousand years, give or take, right? All right, heading our way to James Webb. So there's a famous image from the Hubble Space Telescope called the Pillars of Creation. Uh, it actually should be the Pillars of Destruction, all right? 
So this is a visible image from a, uh, actually an amateur photometer, a photographer of, of, of this region. So you're looking at basically a bunch of stuff around here. Stars are being born in this region. And there's a, several massive stars. When I say massive stars, they're more massive than our sun. And those stars emit tons of radiation, particularly radiation in the ultraviolet. And that gradually ablates and pushes away the material in the vicinity. They also have winds, the vigorous, lots of energy coming out of these stars. And they're pushing material around. They cleared out a cavity. And they're eating away at their parent material out of which they're born out of. The material out of which they're born out of is what we call a molecular cloud. It's basically clouds full of, as I said, molecules and dust. And when stars are born, they basically destroy their nearby vicinity. They're, they're not very forgiving. And so that's what that actually is. So let's zoom in. This is the Hubble Space Telescope image now, where you can see these things coming up. What that is is these stars are eating away at the surrounding cloud and revealing the dense filaments out of which the next generation of stars was being born. So this is I, the Hubble, the, the, the really famous Hubble image of this object. So these are, this is the so-called pillars of creation. So this is looking at in the visible. You see all this dark stuff. Well, we know what that dark stuff is now, right? That's the stuff out of which stars are going to be made. All right. And I can see little point sources in there. That must be young baby stars. They appear to be red. That actually is what they would look like. All right. And then there's other stars in the vicinity. And there's, you can see all this surrounding crap, right? And what that is is that those massive stars are eating away at this object and destroying it as it's making the next generation. So the first generations of stars is eating away at the material for the next generation. We don't know what that means for that next generation. So this is a picture now going to longer wavelengths. And all of a sudden, I can see through the object. I can see all these stars that were once behind it. Okay, But now I see stars here, star there, star there, that was not present here. Those are baby stars. There's some point sources here as well. So now, going on and comparing Hubble to James Webb. All right, so that was Hubble compared to Hubble. This is now Hubble over here, visible to infrared light with the James Webb Space Telescope. And this thing is just, I mean, I, I can stare at this and try to figure out. You see all this structure here. I mean, there's like things being broken apart. Okay, now there's some things happening here. See this red stuff right at the tip here, that there? Okay, baby stars, when they're born, they eject material out of their poles. What's going on, okay, so gravity wins, collapse is coming down, the object is rotating, and the rotating object collapses into a disk of material surrounding the star. Why does it collapse to a disk? Well, okay, if I were to take my shoe and I do this in my class. I take my shoe off. I'm not going to do it here. Uh, and hold it by the shoestrings and try to spin it over my head. I can spin it this way, but I can't spin it directly over my head, right? So I have a rotating object. When the thing collapses, the stuff that's right above my head, that collapses straight down. 
And the same thing happens for the material that's over here. And so that's why you collapse, when things collapse under gravity, you form a star and a disk of material. And we actually know this, our solar system, all of the planets are orbiting in a plane. So they were born out of that disk of material. Okay, so I have this star, it's being born, it's accreting material, it has to conserve angular momentum. So accreting material means it's growing. It has to conserve angular momentum, so it has to throw stuff away. It can't throw it along the equator because there's a disk there, so it throws it along the poles. Okay? These are what we call bipolar outflows. We'll see an example of that in one of the next images. But that's what this red stuff is here. Okay? That's a baby star throwing off material and it hits the surrounding gas and excites the hydrogen molecules. And that red stuff is the hydrogen molecule saying, I'm hot. That's essentially all that's saying is I'm hot. And when I, what do I mean by hot, I'm hot? Uh, it's probably of order 1,000 degrees above absolute zero. So in Fahrenheit, I don't know, 1,200 or something like that, okay? Yes? So the, the <laughs> The, 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 can I help you with scale? Okay, so this is probably of order tens of light years, and one light year is of order six times 10 to the 12th miles. So that's a million times a million times six. So the way I would say this, the scale is bonkers. <laughs> okay, everything's relative, all right? So this is another, this is a zoom in on that, so you can really see the red stuff here, right there, and also here and here. So what's going on there is, why is it always on the edges here? Because the densest part of that filament is where the stars are being born. That's the hardest part for that massive star to, to ablate away. Essentially, it's able to ablate away the, the lower density material, but when you get to where the stars are being born, that's the t most tightly held material. Why? Because there's a young star there that has collapsed everything together under gravity. All right, so that's why you're seeing the red stuff on the edges, and there's all kinds of structure there that I won't even, I can't explain, and I won't even try. I'm not gonna waste my career on it, right? All right, so this is a, another image of, uh, this is a, a ground, a, just a photographer of, of a famous region called the Orion Nebula. So we're, maybe you're aware of the constellation Orion. I, I go out and pick up my paper at uh, 7 a.m. and if it's clear, Orion is up just over the horizon, three stars in a row, the belt of Orion. It was very inspirational for me. It's one of the reasons I'm here. Um, and the belt of Orion, if you go down to where the sword is, there's the Orion Nebula. This is a region where about yeah, 10,000 stars, maybe 40,000 stars are being born right now, and by right now, I mean over the past few hundred thousand years. So there's all kinds of things happening in this region. Uh, the, this is, there's a, another, 
star cluster up here. This is where very young stars are being born. But then there's this one interesting thing. You can see, it's hard to see in this image, but there's a straight line here where there's like material all of a sudden appears to be what we call a bar. And it's sort of shown there. And this is the Orion bar right here. Okay, so these are the young stars that are being born. And what we think is happening is that, okay, so we're observing this cloud on the face of the sky. All right, these stars are in front of the cloud and they're kicking its butt. Winds and radiation, they're eating away at it. And there's a cup and this thing here is where the, the edge of the cup comes up towards us. Okay, and so we see basically an edge effect. This is what we call the Orion bar right there. And this is what it looks like with the James Webb Space Telescope. I was particularly excited about this because I am not involved in tons of James Webb programs, but I was involved in this one. And this image was taken on a Saturday night and they process it and release it on a Monday morning, which is insane. Usually it takes months. Right, so, so they're, the James, they're, they're, they really know what they're doing here, uh, trying to excite the public. And so, again, we have these massive stars over here, and the radiation is coming this way, and you almost have an edge-on thing where this, this stuff is gonna be the most affected by radiation, and as you go downstream, there'll be less, 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 less. But it's always confusing, because there's, there's another star over here, and what's that doing? and so on and so forth. Astronomy is uh, always fun. There's lots of things we can look at in this image. So this is a star, because we see the diffraction spikes. This is a, a young star that is still embedded in its natal material. This thing right here, you can't see it as much, that's a disk. That's a, that's a planet-forming disk that is being just completely ablated by the nearby mass of stars. And it, it's right now from the estimates that we have, I don't think this thing will be able to make planets before the massive star basically just blows everything away. Uh, and then this is just material. So what we, we call this a photo dissociation reason because the molecules are present downstream and they're being dissociated as you get closer to the source. Another way of looking at this, a colleague of mine once said that all of astronomy is surfaces. And they're right, everything we observe in the sky except for a star is a surface. Uh, and we're looking at surfaces here, essentially. This is another example of surfaces. This is Eta Carina. And again, if you want scale, it's just bonkers. This is about, so the other objects I was showing you were maybe at a few hundred light years away. Well, the, that's not true. The, the M17 one is several thousand. This is several tens of thousand light years away. And this is a really super huge massive star is eating away at its material. And you might, wonder, why am, I, why am I always focusing on massive stars? What's going on is, is when you have big things in the vicinity, they heat stuff up and we're able to detect it. So it's no accident that some of the best pictures we have from the James Webb Space Telescope are giving you region where A, stars are being born, 
and B, a star more massive than our sun is being born because they emit tons of radiation. So this is just a rim of material. The star is way up here and it's just eating away at it, but you see all this structure. There must be a star right here because it's sticking out. That has to be a baby star. This is zooming in on it, and this is where I, you know, when I told you that we see outflows, this thing right here, I don't know if you can see it, that is an outflow from a star that's about 100,000 years old. Same thing here, you see that structure there? That's from a star, right there, another one. That's a baby star right here, and it's ejecting material on its poles. It's going out like this. And, and why is it gold? Because that's, that's the color that they decided to give it when they made the image. Okay. Another thing that James Webb is going to try to do is detect life. All right. And the way we do that is I've been showing you images that are taken at a specific part of the spectrum of light. We can take that and break it up even, even to finer components and try to look for either the emission or some presence of molecules present somewhere. So when I told you that you take a microwave and you excite water molecules, you vibrate water molecules, that's what happens in space or on a planet. Water molecules in our atmosphere are vibrating. And when they do, they actually can emit light. What happens is they gain energy when they absorb a photon from the star. All right, and they vibrate, and like everything else, they want to chillax. You know, they want to be in the ground state, eating popcorn, watching TV. So what they do is they slow down that vibration, and they emit a photon of light. And that photon of light is at a discrete part of the spectrum of light. So I could take my telescope, and I can, I'm a radio astronomer, I think about it this way. It's kind of like tuning myself to the radio station. Uh, and I can see water in space. And the same thing can happen in a planet. That is, we can observe, this is the spectrum of a planet. In this case, we see what's called an absorption. I'm not going to worry about that. But you can see this is actually what the Earth would look like. There's water at certain wavelengths, methane, and then other things here. So this is one that we're really keyed on, which is called ozone. Ozone is from O2, molecular oxygen. That's from life. So James Webb is really going to be looking for that, but it's really hard. Um, I have to end soon. So this is what's called the cartwheel galaxies. These galaxies are interacting with each other. This was a spiral galaxy. And essentially, these two things started banging gravitationally into each other. And that caused stars to be born in this region here. And this is two different wavelengths. You can just see it's amazing. See the different structure here? That's information. All that red stuff is where stars are being born right now in that galaxy. This is a galaxy. When I told you we're going to see the assembly of galaxies, the way galaxies get assembled is they eat other galaxies. This is a picture of a galaxy eating another galaxy. And when it does, you know what it does? It, it, it makes stars form, and it, it excites a burst of star birth, and that's what all that red stuff is. These are called starburst galaxies. Another example of an object when galaxies are being born, they also have jets of material that they shoot out. All right, 
And I'll skip that and head to this one here. That's me in front of the James Webb's telescope when it was on the ground. I was a happy man. Got to see it. And this is what I do. I look at planet-forming disks. This is not with the James Webb Space Telescope. But when you look at this right here, we see these, these objects. This is where planets are being born right now. We see these gaps here. We think that there's a planet hidden there, and we're going to use the James Webb Space Telescope to try to tell us that it's there. And that's what I'm actively doing right now. So I'll stop right there. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Um, right now I'm gonna turn up the lights in just a few moments um, and you guys can take a break, talk to each other about what you've learned, what you're excited about, why we should continue to fund this kind of basic science research. There are some questions on your tables. We'll come back together in about 15 minutes uh, and then we'll have a group discussion. So in the meantime, uh, I think our uh, wait staff are Emma and Aoife, uh, and they are here to help you, so please don't hesitate to call on them. Thank you. It's always difficult to inter interrupt these great conversations, but I'm going to try to bring us back together. Thank you so much. Um, so this part of the Science Cafe is a group discussion. Um, and I have a few ground rules before we start. Um, so Ted has agreed to moderate tonight, and he's going to let, let speakers know when they have the floor and when they don't. Um, I am going to pass a cordless mic, not actually this one. I'll be passing that other one that's over there, the red one, this one. And I also have wipes for it in case you want to wipe it off before you speak into it. Um, uh, if, uh, so please use the mic because we are uh, recording this conversation and it will be part of a later podcast. It will be edited. In a couple of weeks, it'll be on our website. Uh, so please do use, use the mic. It also enables people uh, with hearing impairments to hear. Uh, so please wait for me to get the mic to you, even if it takes a couple of seconds. So this will actually be a TED talk. Aha! Uh -huh. <laughs> it will ac actually be a TED talk, yes. So um, please look at TED to be recognized if you would like to speak, even though I will be passing the microphone. He's going to point to people, and then they have the floor. Please limit your questions or comments to 30 seconds or a minute, just so that lots of people can participate. Ted may interrupt you if you go on forever. Um, likewise, Ted will give preference to those who haven't spoken yet to just to diversify the voices that we hear. And um, there's lots of expertise in this room, so please feel free to address questions um, uh, and comments uh, to the group and ask other participants for their experiences, as well as asking our speaker uh, uh, questions about the content. Um, I, hope I, I hope that I don't need to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. We like to foster open discussion and honest debate, even as we address topics about which we may disagree. Please be nice to each other or else. 
And if you, forgot to, if you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this particular portion of the program, you may find yourself pictured in one of the next James Webb Space Telescope photos. So please silence your phone. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to hand this to you. Matt. Oh, there it is. There we go. Just light to me. Oh. Yep. Matt is magic. So, so every, everyone, Matt ran our planetarium for more than 30 years. He's just back there humbly doing sound tonight. All right, so go ahead. The floor is open for discussion. Sir. Simple question. Does the universe have a center? I have no clue. You talk about expanding. expanding yeah, I mean, universe. it has no center. No, it's really hard to define these things. What is the edge of the universe, right? I guess it would be where the CMB is, just beyond that. What's beyond the edge of the universe? I tell my students go talk to the physicists. Um, Fred Adams is a great person to talk to if you want to know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Thank you. I was wondering about what innovations have been developed through space exploration that were developed in order to be able to do it, but actually wound up helping us here on Earth um, in terms right, of developing right, new right. technologies and things like that. Yeah, I mean, so the NASA's big at touting this, but you know, one of the things that came out of astronomy and funded in a large part by NASA uh, were CCD chips. And maybe you're familiar with CCD chips, right? You ever take a picture, right? Okay. Uh, also, not 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 with NASA, but this was ground-based astronomy. How many have had a, a magnetic magnetic resonance imaging MRI, right here? Okay. The the software that was used to take that image and give it to the doctor to look at. That came from radio astronomy, where, where I live. Uh, and so basic science, we don't know where we're going often. And sometimes it leads to amazing places, uh, such as you know, having a little computer here that's in your pocket. OK, others. Thank you. Sure. Um, Roger Penrose has um, some interesting mathematical models that uh, postulate that perhaps the redshift that we see uh, deep in space um, can be more, I guess, um, accounted for by uh, changing light speed from the beginning of uh, Big Bang, beginning of time. Um, what would you, how would you address that issue looking at the mass data? Right, so, so you know, an important part of our understanding of, of the universe writ large, right? So we have this, this, what we call the Hubble flow, where all galaxies are moving away from each other. But when we look at the distribution of matter, what we infer is about 30%-ish of the material uh, of mass in the universe is comprised of dark matter that we can't observe, and another sort of like 60% is comprised of dark energy, and since Einstein told us that energy equals 
mass, uh, it's comprised of energy that we can't observe, uh, which we call it dark. So we infer its presence, but we don't know what it is. And the rest of it is the stuff that we can see plus some other things. And you know, there's interesting theories about how this all came to be. Much of our understanding is built upon you know, the way we were taught. You know, we were taught based upon Newton's view of mechanics and gravity. And then Einstein came and extended our understanding of gravity, right? And that's how we analyze our understanding of the universe. But what the universe is telling us is you don't know what's going on, right? And so there's lots of, I think, lots of space for people to think and try to understand that. We can, most of what we do is based upon Einstein uh, and Newton, and we build off that. But is that right? We, we, we don't know, right? That's the way I look at it. Uh, why is it, you, you made it sound like it's an obvious thing that larger planets could not sustain life, larger than, I think you said Jupiter, for example. Why right, is that so, so I just did this lecture on Tuesday. Um, <laughs> all right, so, so if, 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 if what, what I do is a biological tour of the solar system, right? And, and, and what life needs, life needs energy. Okay, you can get the energy from the sun if you could figure out to do that. Uh, but life on the Earth didn't start with photosynthesis, actually. It started before photosynthesis and evolved to photosynthesis. So life on the Earth got its energy from the Earth, actually, from heat coming up from the rocks. So you had to have a living planet, that's one, so energy. Uh, you need a source of materials, okay, that's another one. Um, if we look at the planets, they all have the, essentially the stuff that we're made of, hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, with a bunch of other things, okay? So, all right, they have that, but what life needs is a liquid medium, all right? All life on Earth uses liquid water as the medium of life. Uh, Jovian planets do have layers where liquid water exists, but they have strong vertical and horizontal winds that move things so that they don't spend that much time in the same place. And however the heck life formed, it came out of some puddle somewhere where things just sat there and did this and did that and did this and did that until something worked. Okay? Uh, that's, that will happen only on a world like our own where water is present on a rocky body. Okay, and what we don't know is, well, does it have to be the same size of the Earth? Could it be a little bit bigger? Or, you know, two times the size of the Earth? 1.5 times the size of the Earth? What if it's, well, Mars, we have the Mars experiment. It doesn't last very long if it's Mars-sized. Why is that? Because planets cool. When they're smaller, they cool quicker. Mars is a dead world, all right? And so Mars once had water flowing on its surface, but because it's a dead world, it lost its magnetic field, and the magnetic field was protecting its atmosphere from the sun. The sun emits particles that basically just hit the atmospheres all the time, and our magnetic field protects our planet, but Mars lost its magnetic field. 
and over time its atmosphere was stripped away and Mars became the desolate world that it is today. So we know that Mars doesn't work, so you know, point maybe somewhere between the size of the Earth and a little bit larger is what we think is the zone where you might find life. That if water is the medium for life, yes. If another liquid, so Titan has lakes of liquid methane, and 4.6 billion years of sitting there with lakes of liquid methane, maybe it found another way. We don't know. Okay. Will you share with us a little bit more about the telescope itself, its development, and where is it right now? So, so it's, it's at a Lagrange point, which is a stable point in the Earth-Sun orbit. Um, so it's really, it's, it's, it's not in orbit around, it's, it's sort of like in orbit around the Earth-Sun is <laughs> the way to look at it, okay? And I don't know the distance that it is away off the top of my head, but the, the James Webb came from a, a time where the NASA administrator was, was dreaming big. Um, it's a fellow by the name of Dan Golden. Uh, and, you know, he said, if we're going to build a telescope, you should make sure that it can, you know, it can have everything that you want to do to detect that first light in the universe. So they came up with the telescope size, they came up with the instruments. Um, the issue that they had is there's different ways to, to have a, a telescope be long-lived. Our instruments have to be cooled down to insanely low temperatures. All right, so if, if we, what do I mean by that? Okay, so uh, let's, it's easier for me to work in Celsius than it is in Fahrenheit, but okay, so zero degrees Celsius is where water freezes. 100 degrees is where water boils. Our instruments have to be cooled down to, you know, these, I think on web they're down at like minus 240, 250 degrees Kelvin. Okay, so they're really, really cold. So there's different ways you can do that. And one thing you absolutely have to do is you have to block the sun. That is, the sun is always there. It's emitting energy all the time, and it's heating your telescope up. Okay? So they developed this technology for what's called a sun shield, which is this big thing. I was going to have a picture about it, but I was running. Uh, I thought I was going to run over time, and indeed I did. So the sun shield was the true the true big technological development. It's at the bottom of the, the base of the telescope. It's always pointed towards the sun. And it's like the size of a football field. And it had to be unfurled both this direction, this direction, and that direction. Uh, and so that was done, I think, at Ball Aerospace. Another technological development that they had is to fit in the fairing of the telescope, they had to take the primary mirror and make it be A-segmented, so we saw those segments in the selfie, right? But the two outer parts were wrapped at birth, were wrapped in like this, and then expanded like that, all right? And that, you know, anytime you have a moving part on a space telescope, it's scary, 
right? Because if it doesn't move, you're, 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 you're in trouble, okay? And that's, I was told that the military had mastered that technology. I don't know if that's true or not, uh, the unfolding telescope, uh, but maybe it's true. Uh, but Webb had 400 single point failures on, in its deployment. And uh, you generally want that number to be like one or two, <laughs> all right? Uh, and it's a credit to the engineers. Now, it took long. It took much longer, you know, uh, nearly a decade longer than, than we thought it would because we really pushed what we could do te technologically. That is, that sunshade was one of the things that really slowed us down. They didn't think about that. Uh, and so they tested it, they tested it, they tested it. And, and you know, I remember we, we were working feverishly on proposals. And then they told us that there was a problem and it was going to be delayed another year. They told us two days before the proposals were due. You know, my whole, all my postdocs, my students, we were working hard trying to figure out what to do and put in our proposals to get telescope time. And then they just, you know, it was Lucy with the football, right? It's, it's over. You're not going to get it. Uh, but it was a good thing, right? Because I want this thing to work. And the amazing thing is that everything worked. And they did have some hiccups, but they were able to get through them without any trouble. And it's, it's a true credit to the engineers that, that built this, this instrument. Uh, what are the long-term effects of that uh, meteor strike on the, the mirror in there? Right, right. So, so the sp space is, what, what I've learned about space telescopes is space is an insanely benign space uh, place uh, to, to do astronomy because not much happens. It's really awesome. Uh, but space is not empty, right? So obviously there's photons from the sun. There's particles that the sun launches out. And when comets pass by the sun, they throw off stuff, and some of that stuff are, are, are tiny little particles of dust. And James Webb has been hit by a couple of these micrometeorites, effectively is what they are. Uh, and I've been assured by my colleagues working at Space Telescope that they were aware that this was going to be an issue, and this is not going to be a problem. The neat thing about Webb is that each one of those segments can be deformed and moved. Uh, so if they have problems, they have options for trying to fix them, which is kind of neat. Oh, yes. In my opinion, one of the most mind-boggling things about Hubble was when they pointed it at a dark spot in the sky the size of a grain of sand and took a picture over several days, and they found 10,000 galaxies that they never knew existed. Right. Will they do the same thing with James Webb? The answer is yes, but I skipped over it. <laughs> so this is the, the James Webb deep field. Um, and so this is a big thing that, that we all, they, they, they just do now, right? And, and in general, everything you're looking at there is a galaxy. So, so what's on the left? So, so the left is, I think, just the near cam instrument. So that's the shorter wavelength, but still infrared. 
and then the right is the combined NearCam and MIRI. Or no, it's the other way around. Right is NearCam because I see bigger diffraction spikes and smaller. So let me call up my thingamajigger here. So this is a star. You see those diffraction spikes? Same thing here. There's smaller diffraction spikes in this image. That's because this is at longer wavelengths. So anything that I see in this image that is not, does not have these spikes, that's a galaxy. And, you know, galaxies each have, you know, a bajillion stars, there's a bajillion galaxies, they each have, each star has planets, and this is why I tell my students it's likely that we're not alone in the universe. Whether life is intelligent, I don't know because I don't think we're all that intelligent myself. <laughs> Um, there's lots of things to look at this image. You know, some of the galaxies are red, some are blue. The red ones are the further away, uh, and the blue ones are the older ones. And there's other things that I could talk about. So, absolutely, this is, this is they're, they're looking at the same fields where James Webb did its uh, beautiful stuff. And what you're seeing is even further back in time, and it's going to take a while to mine this data. And people have been, you know, they've already detected the most distant objects we've ever detected. And someone else is going to detect something that's even more distant and it's going to keep on going. We have about five more minutes. What's the next generation telescope and what will it do? Right. So, so the, the, the astronomy just went through a, a something every decade we go through and look at where we are and, and where we hope to be uh, in the next day. Where, where should we focus our resources? And, and that comes from NASA and the National Science Foundation that fund astronomy. They basically direct us to what's the next best thing. And so the thing we're going to try to do next is the goal is to find life around another Earth. And the way they're going to do that is to by building an even bigger version of the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, it was called the Large UV Optical uh, Observatory. Uh, it's now called something else. But that's the next generation. So it's going to take 10 years to think about how we want to do it, and then another 10 years to build the thing. And I don't even know if I'm going to be here to see it. Uh, but I say within, you know, by 2040, uh, we will have built this observatory, we hope, uh, and that observatory should, be a, should have the capability, right now we don't have any telescope with the capability to detect an Earth around a sun-like star and look for the molecules of life. Uh, James Webb is going to try to do that on more massive objects. Uh, more massive, things more massive than the Earth, and orbiting stars that are different than our sun, and ground-based telescopes are going to do the same, but this next generation telescope is, is going to do, do it right. And so what I tell my students is they're living in an incredible time where we are potentially going to find out whether we're alone in the universe, which is amazing, right? Uh, the other goal I heard that um, the two words, first light, uh, I mean, is sort of awesome. And what does it mean to you? My, my, my brain, 
I love astronomy. I, I, I just love astronomy. And, and just thinking about, A, the truly dark ages where stars aren't there, and then all of a sudden a candle goes off, a really big one, <laughs> and then there is light. What I see is, God, there's some really interesting physics and chemistry that I could do there that I might be able to try to, to explore that. Uh, and, and try to understand how these things came to be. Because that's what, I'm a scientist, I want to know how, so that I can predict the why. Uh, and sometimes I run against the edge of my, you know, I, I don't know what the edge of the universe is, I don't know what came before the Big Bang. But, but what I do know is, you know, for my part, I will contribute to our understanding about how we came to be here. So that, that's, that's a goal. Not going to solve it, but I'm going to contribute. That's yes, awesome. Yes, please. So I was actually wondering, don't we have two planets that NASA thought might be good, like Proxima B and Kepler 45-2B? Yeah, there, there's, there, there are potential systems. So the Trappist system is another one where they're, they're, they're close enough to us that it's possible that if life did exist around those systems, that we might be able to see it with James Webb. The trick is that is done around stars that are less massive than our sun, okay? So the, the way it works is you have to have a liquid medium, all right? So there's what's called a Goldilocks zone, where if you're too close to the star, you're in a rocky world, you're too close to the star, the water would be in the atmosphere, you go a little bit further away, it's just right, water is liquid, and you go a little bit further away, it's too cold, and you're in an ice world. Okay, that Goldilocks zone around a star that's less massive than our sun is closer to the star. And in fact, it's so close to the star that the planet is what we call tidally locked. That is, it always places the same face as the star. Its rotation period equals the same as its orbital period. And what that means, there's a day side on this planet, and there's a night side, and it don't change. Wasn't it Kepler B, 45-2B, or Proxima B that had 11 days on its planet? Right, so I, I don't know the, the zip codes, and, and, but yes, that's what you're, exactly what you're talking about. Their orbits are measured in days and months, less than a month. Uh, whereas we're measured in years. And so that means the, the way it works, if your orbit is 11 days, you're parked right next to that star. All right, and that's another problem. Okay, so one is if, if you have a planet that there's a day side and night side, so you, you, know, you, you drive to the other side of the planet for night and you come back for day, uh, but you would need circulation. You would need a thick atmosphere to circulate things and cool down the, the day side. Plus, stars that are less massive than our sun emit copious amounts of dangerous radiation, x-rays and ultraviolet. And we are concerned, not concerned, we think that that is likely harmful and these might not be the best sources, places to look for life. But we don't know, so we look, okay? And we try to find out. We have to leave it there, folks. Thank you so much.
A couple of notes. There are little blue pieces of paper on your uh, tables and little yellow pencils. Please use those to let us know what we did well, what we can do better, and what subjects you would like to hear about in future science cafes. Um, also, please remember our donation box on your way out. And please do not forget your servers, Aoife and Emma. They have been so helpful. Um, so please leave them something if you haven't had a chance to do that yet. Finally, thank you so much to Connor O'Neill's. And of course, thank you, Ted Bergen. This was a wonderful cafe.